Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we love to highlight people who are doing amazing work in technology. And one of those people is Jaleesa Trapp, a PhD student at the MIT Media Lab in the Lifelong Kindergarten Group. I want to make sure that that space I'm facilitating is the same for other youth so that they can go further. When people hear this, they're like, oh, that would work well for all students. And that's the point. I'm doing this specifically for black and brown youth, but it'll work for all youth and it does, but making sure that you are equitable by design and that you're very intentional about the the space that you create. More with Jaleesa soon. And in the last part of the show, Dr. Peter Eckersley is here to talk about the incident in Detroit where Robert Williams, a black man, was wrongfully arrested due to mistaken identity from facial recognition software used by the police department. And what we need to do to make sure this stops happening. But first... I'm joined by Dr. June Axop, the Chief Science Officer and partner at IndieBio. June, it's been a little while since we've talked. So what are some things we've learned in the last few months about COVID-19? Yeah, the last couple of months have been a huge roller coaster. There's been so much happening and almost every single day there's something new happening with COVID. The scientific community has learned a lot about COVID in this time and it's been phenomenal seeing the amount of research coming together and different groups from all around the world working on tackling this problem. We have learned a lot of new things about the disease. At the same time, it oftentimes have opened new questions and new exploration areas. And so this is obviously a ongoing going process as we continue to understand and hopefully find a cure for COVID. The major things that I think are pretty impactful is one is that we've actually learned that about 20 to 30 percent of people are asymptomatic. Even if they get the disease, they don't have any symptoms at all. And this is more worrisome than we thought because those people are now spreading the disease when they don't even know that they're sick. And so that's something people are still monitoring. People are still trying to understand how that affects infection rates. So that's something to definitely think about. We know that people who have been able to survive the disease, have, of course, develop antibodies to help their immune system. But we also don't know exactly how long those antibodies stay in the body. And some early research are showing that potentially it only lasts two to three months. We don't currently understand whether you can be reinfected by the disease or how long you actually are immune to the disease. On a plus side, I would say that it does seem like COVID does not stay on surfaces or at least surfaces surfaces are not a major vector of infection. While it's still a really great idea to regularly disinfect your area and counters and everything, but you might have to be as religious about leaving your mail out for a week before touching it. It's a little bit more helpful. And while there have been a lot of developments in the last couple of months around vaccines, and there's, I believe, over 70 different trials all around the world happening right now, the preliminary results are still very early, but somewhat promising. But unfortunately, that is also no guarantee that these vaccines will work or be safe at the moment. So we don't have a specific timeline. This is a very new disease. And as you've said, information keeps coming at us and keeps changing. We're watching the scientific method unfold in some ways as we're getting results from some papers back and then other contradictory information. So it's been interesting to watch this. Based on what we know now, what are recommendations? 
I think the main thing to recommend at this point is to keep very strict about keeping social distancing and trying to wear masks. There has been a lot of evidence showing that masks really work, not just from someone spreading the disease, but also inhaling the disease. And a couple of other interesting research coming out around vitamin D, taking vitamin D could help you, especially now that a lot of people are trapped inside, so you're not getting a lot of vitamin D naturally through sunlight. The recommendation is to take about 4,000 IUs a day, and that could potentially help with the severity of your disease if you were to catch COVID. Other things to think about is if you do end up contacting folks and as people are starting to go back to work, make sure you have a really good log of who you've been in contact with and notify those people immediately if you start having symptoms and, of course, quarantine yourself as soon as you feel like you have some symptoms. COVID has been extremely devastating for a lot of folks who are personally affected, both on the emotional side, on the disease side, on the financial side. We know that this is something the entire world is suffering from, and you're not alone, and we should all do our part to try to battle this disease together. Yeah, so wear your mask for everyone's sake. That was Dr. June Axop with the latest updates on what we know about COVID-19. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Up next, I'm joined by Jalisa Trapp, a PhD student at the MIT Media Lab with the Lifelong Kindergarten Group, who is working to make STEM education more accessible. What is your hero's journey? How did you end up at the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at MIT? It's interesting. MIT actually came to me. When I was in the seventh grade, I started going to an after-school program called the Computer Clubhouse. Initially, I did not want to go. My aunt came and picked me and my sister up and dropped us off. I noticed that there was other people there that I recognized from the neighborhood and from school. It was an after-school program where we could go and we could create stuff. So I learned how to make a website. I learned how to do anything with technology there. And I was able to do it. The clubhouse that I went to in Tacoma, Washington is part of a network of more than 100 clubhouses around the world. It was created by Mitch Resnick, who's my advisor now, and Natalie Russ, both from the Media Lab from the Lifelong Kindergarten Research Group. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that program. I learned how to code there and not just learn how to code. I was able to learn how to code in a way that worked for me. The first interactive CD-ROM that I created was called What If There Were No Black People? And it highlighted different Black inventors. You click on different things that Black people invented, and they would disappear, but then you would get the story behind it. This was invented by this person in this year. I learned how to code in a language called Lingo, which I learned was created by a Black man. And so I wrote the code for the program to be interactive so that when you click on different things in the story, different animations would happen. And that was really interesting to me because I was really interested in Black history because my mom, in our house, we've had all Black everything. I didn't even know that The Wizard of Oz was a thing because I'd only seen The Wiz. I think I was in the second grade when the Million Man March happened. We stayed home to watch it. So working on this project really meant a lot to me and really made me want to learn more about coding so that I could create more things. My mentor at the clubhouse, Miss Laversa, was a Black woman. Her hair looked like mine, and she taught me how to code and do 
video and music production, animation, graphic design. That program was really life-changing for me. And it also allowed me to get scholarships. And I was able to intern at Microsoft as a high school student. So I would take the bus from Tacoma to Redmond every day. I'd have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning in the summer. And that internship introduced me to user experience research, which I had no idea was a thing. And that was really cool because I knew that I liked technology and I liked helping people. So that was perfect for me. I stayed at the clubhouse until I graduated from high school. I went to the University of Washington. Initially, I was going to major in computer science because I loved coding and I was really good at it. Then I took an intro class and I was like, what is this? Um, It was not like anything I'd done before. The structure of the class, the structure of the program did not fit me at all. And so for a while I was like, I'm a failure. What am I going to do? I can't do computer science, but I can. (laughs) And so I ended up finding, it was then the technical communication program, but it turned into human-centered design and engineering. And that program was a perfect fit for me. Um, I got my bachelor's degree in human-centered design and engineering with a focus on human-computer interactions. Then I did AmeriCorps, (laughs) which was not normal. A lot of people in my program went to work for a lot of different big tech companies, but I went back to Tacoma and I did a year of AmeriCorps as an academic coach and tutor specifically for math and science. But in the same neighborhood that the clubhouse was in, I went back to the clubhouse to be the coordinator there. And at the same time, I started teaching uh, computer science at a high school called the Science and Math Institute. Also, when I started teaching, I started a master's program at University of Washington, and I realized quickly that it was expensive, and I had already done most of that stuff in undergrad, so I quit, which is something that I usually don't do. And then I applied to the Media Lab. Now I'm at the Media Lab, and but I'm also still teaching in Tacoma. This past year has looked pretty hectic for me flying back and forth, but it's definitely worth it because I really like teaching. Yeah, and having a good teacher like what you experienced with Miss LaVersa, and now you get to be that for the next generation. You're part of the lifelong kindergarten group at MIT. Can you talk a bit about what that means? Yeah, so the lifelong kindergarten research group, we look at how children learn creatively. We believe in constructionism. That theory means that we learn by constructing things and that there's a facilitator. So not a normal teacher giving you step-by-step instructions, but the teacher is more of a facilitator and helps facilitate that learning that you're actively building and not just going through the steps which fit me perfectly because that's how I run my classroom. Your focus is specifically on how youth of color interacts with technology, and you work mostly with high school students. What are some of the differences that you see? What are some ways that we can accommodate or celebrate those differences? My master's thesis, Uncovering Hidden Pathways, and I called it that because I co-taught a class called Uncovering Hidden Pathways to STEM, 
you think of the movie Hidden Figures. And it's not that those women weren't smart or weren't capable. It's just that their talent was literally hidden. People didn't talk about it. And I think that's the same for youth of color, for Black youth, especially that they already possess this creativity and this knowledge that they need to be successful. But a lot of times that's hidden and pathways into STEM aren't clear for them. And the work that I'm doing is making that more clear, but also making the classroom that is a place for them. What I mean by that is there's simple things that educators can do to make sure that this class is a space for everyone. And it's not like specifically calling out Black youth. Here, come sit in the front. I have this special chair for you. But it's making sure that everybody feels seen, feels heard, and feels valued, and that this space belongs to them and that they belong in that space. I hate it when teachers took attendance on the first day or if there was a substitute because they always messed up my name, even though it's super easy to say. It's spelled phonetically. I would get like Jalessa and I'm like, there's two E's. So when I teach, the first day I ask students to tell me their names. And then that's a power that youth, especially youth of color, don't typically have. Other people are always telling us what we should be called. And so allowing everyone to go around and say what their name is. And sometimes that name is not even what's on the attendance record. Helping them reclaim their own power and confidence by allowing them to say their name. In our first meeting in the classroom or if I'm doing a workshop, I have them say their name and then three things that they value. And I think that's really important to start out with what you value instead of something like what neighborhood do you live in or anything else that would identify them or make them feel less than somebody else in the room. But what are your values? And I usually write those down and I end up making a big word cloud that we keep for the rest of the year or the rest of that session to remind people that we all have values and a lot of them are the same and some of them are different. But to remember that we all are coming in here at this same level. And then the next thing that I do is I have them come up with community guidelines together as a class. So typically in the classroom, you have rules that you have to follow and those rules are set by the teacher. Don't do this. Don't do that. Instead, we do community guidelines. I ask, how do you want to be treated in this space and how do you want to treat others? And so as a class, we come up with these community guidelines. One of the community guidelines that I always add is trust other people's experiences, even if it isn't your own. Because we want to make sure that it's a place that youth can talk about the ideas that they have, a project that they want to work on. Especially in STEM classrooms, they already come in feeling intimidated by regular things that go on in school. And then you add technology, and that's another barrier. So we want to make sure that they know that this is a place where they can talk about their experiences. If I didn't have that type of experience, I wouldn't have learned how to code. It was okay for me to come and talk about Black history and Black inventors while I was learning how to code. And because that was okay, I wanted to learn more. So I want to make sure that that space that I'm facilitating is the same for other youth so that they can go further. When people hear this, they're like, oh, that would work well for all students. And I'm like, that's the point. I'm doing this specifically for Black and Brown youth. But it'll work for all youth, and it does. The classrooms that I teach aren't always all Black youth, youth of color, but making sure that you are equitable by design and that you're very intentional about the the space that you create. 
another thing that I found when doing this work is that a lot of youth either don't have that social network of people who have a career in STEM that they can go and talk to and ask questions, and two, don't know what a STEM career is. I had students list out all the careers in STEM that they could think of, and they wrote things like chemist or mathematician. And then I asked, what do they do? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Even helping them connect um, their own interests to possible college and career pathways is something that you have to be very intentional about, especially with youth that come from underrepresented backgrounds, because if you look at their immediate family or their social network, they don't know anybody that they can talk to about these careers. What are some examples in your work that inspire your students to be creators of technology rather than just consumers of it? Yeah, one project that we worked on, and this was actually before I started at the lab, was they had to design a how-to tutorial. Um, And this needed to also be accessible because we were talking about human-computer interactions and accessibility. So somebody who can't see needs to be able to interact with your project and know how to do something. Or somebody who can't hear needs to be able to know how to do it as well. And they were like, anything? I was like, yeah, absolutely anything. And I think the best project that was turned in was how to make a peanut butter sandwich. I told them, you're experts on how to do something, so teach me what you know how to do. And I think that really empowered a lot of students to dig deeper. They were really interested in adding advanced features like, oh, how can we increase font size or how can we increase or decrease the volume? And they started looking for different services online where they could record their voice or if there was like a text-to-speech function. Those types of projects where they have creative control over what they're doing, but they're still hitting those learning targets. I see a huge difference in how many kids turn it in on time, how many kids ask to come and revise it so they can turn it in for a better grade. The amount of students that I had working with each other and looking at, hey, how did you do that? Can you help me do that? So the collaboration was great. So you would walk into my classroom and it would be really loud, but it would be loud because everybody's talking, trying to share information, not that they were just like laughing and joking and not doing anything, but really created an environment where they felt empowered enough to learn from each other and to teach others and not depend on me. They knew that themselves as students also had the creativity and knowledge to create these things. The work that I do, it's always funny to call it work or research because this is what I do. And I think that all educators should be activists and be advocating for all youth to learn and be successful. I am a community organizer as well. And the youth that I work with, they see that. And they see all the different types of work that I do. They see that I am every day doing things for them because I want things to be better for them. But I think that with educators, we need to be actively doing everything that we can to make sure that all of our youth succeed. So that means that all educators need to be activists. And if there's any educators that are listening that are not activists, we need to figure it out before the school year starts because... These students, their lives are in our hand and we can really make a difference. There's so many people that I grew up with that would be amazing web designers or UX researchers. 
if somebody would have let them know that they belong in that space, if only they had somebody to let them know that. That was Jaleesa Trapp, a PhD student at the MIT Media Lab, working to make STEM education more equitable and empowering her students to take control of their future. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Digital Village has been bringing you the cyber news stories and in-depth interviews you won't hear anywhere else to help you navigate the latest in digital technology. Including the information needed to help you guarantee fair voting, keep the internet neutral, and protect yourself online. Please take the important step of giving a gift to help KPFK continue to bring you not only information, news, and culture, but also the sense of joy, relief, and community you've come to expect from us. You can donate right now to keep this glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio flourishing. By going to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks Thanks again. again. Up next, we're joined by Dr. Peter Eckersley and some parakeets he may be sharing a room with. There's obviously a lot of things going on right now. One that's particularly concerning is we had police in Detroit in what is now the first documented mistaken arrest due to the use of facial recognition technology. And this led to, again, the wrongful arrest of a black man, Robert Williams, in front of his young children. What happened here, Peter? Well... It is a danger you expect. If you start using facial recognition systems to purportedly identify people in crowds, you can expect for certain that there will be an error rate. Sometimes a facial recognition system will say, that's Joe Bloggs, and it isn't Joe Bloggs. And we also know that those systems have much higher error rates with dark skin. And especially if you have dark skin and you're a woman, many facial recognition systems have underrepresented people with dark skin and women and people who are both, and therefore have higher error rates when they go to identify those people. How were they able to do this and and use this software? It seems like this shouldn't be allowed. Well, as is often the case in the United States, the default has been that there's very little in the way of privacy protections under U.S. law. We have the Fourth Amendment, which is great, but it's been eaten away by the wars on drugs and terror. And in general, there are a lot of places where U.S. law is silent on privacy protections. And that's been combined with the general culture of militarization of police departments, giving them huge budgets and a lot of latitude to buy whatever toys they want to buy. And so, of course, there are lots of vendors and contractors who would love to provide fancy high-tech AI systems to those police departments in exchange for that money. And so taxpayers' dollars are being spent in a lot of places on all sorts of surveillance technologies that can have all sorts of problematic consequences. A bill was announced called Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act. And this comes after the wrongful arrest of Robert Williams and frankly, quite a bit of pressure from activists that also led to tech companies like Amazon, IBM and Microsoft putting a self-imposed moratorium in place. What should we be looking for in bills like this? I haven't reviewed the specific legislation, but moratorium in general looks like a a promising move to make. When you've got a technology that is understood to be problematic and risky, we, we know it has failure modes and those failure modes can be disproportionately impactful on vulnerable communities. And we know that there's a lot of discomfort with the technology 
a moratorium with minimum table stakes was saying, hey, let's not have enormous deployments of this immature and inappropriate technology right now while we haven't figured out what we would want from it as a society. The big question, actually, this is one of the things I would look at at in this legislation and and any piece of legislation that addresses facial recognition surveillance at the police department and and government level is whether it also addresses comparable non-facial recognition technologies. Good legislation will address both a facial recognition system and similar systems like so-called IMSI catches that track people via their phones because it's just as possible to use those unique phone number beacons that your phone is emitting to track people, you can also get that wrong in a whole bunch of ways. And so if we're concerned about the type of surveillance that happens with facial recognition and cameras, we should also be addressing these other types of surveillance that have become widespread around the United States. Yeah, actually, MobileWalla, a data company, released an estimate of the quote-unquote ethnic demographics of protests in U.S. cities, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and New York. And so that's to your point. They have this data and now they're releasing it. They were giving age distribution, sex, the city you lived in. That's pretty crazy. There are two avenues where this data is getting out there and that I think people in the United States should be legitimately very concerned about. One is on the police and law enforcement and and intelligence agency side, and sometimes advertising and commercial purposes too, this ability to set up a fake cell phone tower that just exists to track people by the MC number on their phone, which is basically the phone number or the IMEI number, which is the handset number, or potentially from Wi-Fi MAC addresses and other things like that. So we should be very concerned about that type of surveillance. And I think it needs to be addressed in any reasonable proposal. The second kind is via apps that you've installed on your phone. And so there are all these apps that ask for location. And then sometimes those apps have cut deals with companies in this ecosystem that buy up lots of that location data. And so these analyses of crowds at protests and in other situations are often produced by those companies. Now, they're companies that you have no relationship with. You've never even heard of them, typically. I'd never heard of Mobile Walla, but they may well know exactly who we are and have purchased access to our location histories over time. And I think we need to move to a situation where the only way that a company can get a record of your location every day is in a situation where you're really clear that they've got that. Like you might choose to turn on Google Maps timeline or something like that, but you should know that you're making that choice and be able to to tell that tracking is in place on any given day when it's happening. That was Dr. Peter Eckersley on concerns around facial recognition technology and other forms of data aggregation. This is the time to be vocal. There's a bill in Congress now called the Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act. So let your representatives know how you feel about the use of this technology. We've covered a lot this episode. Educator and activist Julissa Trapp of the MIT Media Lab was here to talk about her inspiring work exploring different ways youth of color interact with technology in order to design technologies with and for them. We also had a COVID-19 update on best practices with Dr. June Axup. Wear your mask. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode and more by subscribing to our podcast. You're going to kpfk.org, click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. KPFK needs your support and you can donate to keep this glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going here at KPFK. Go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. 
and we'll, we'll see, see you online. online.